History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 515th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to go to Cleveland to check out a really, really cool building. I love this building. It's the Gray's Armory. Looking forward to it. First time I ever heard about this was on Ghost Hunters, and we will be talking a little bit about their investigation there. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Brett. Annette, which is my mom's real full name, and Robin. Thank you so much for joining the Spooktacular crew. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Michael Rogers. Worldwide, current day and old, talents performed by individuals have varied greatly. Shirley Rowland, court minstrel to 12th century King Henry II, had multiple talents, but today the court jester is most well known for one specific performance every Christmas. One of his monikers was Roland the Farter. It is recorded in history that each Christmas Roland had a single job in the court. He was to perform a dance that culminated with one jump, one whistle, and one fart all at the same time. Releasing that basement pressure is always a relief for the frantic person afflicted. However, it is a global distress that can bring on embarrassment and shame regardless of the society one lives in, as well as resulting in odiferous fumes, of course. It is a natural process of the human body, and even Shakespeare, Geoffrey Chaucer, and so many other writers included the humor of flatulence in their recorded pieces. Regardless, being employed for a performance requiring a foul-flying flatulence accompanied by a whistle certainly is odd. Pull the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. And now, This Month in History. This Month in History was suggested by Chelsea Flowers. In the month of December, on the 1st in 1951, Betty Nesmith Graham invented liquid paper. When Betty was hired as a secretary, typing took up a large portion of her job. Unfortunately, she was not the best typist. Neither was I. During that time, Christmas season, at her secretarial job, she noticed a man painting a sign on a bank storefront. Anytime the man made a mistake, he would paint over it to cover the error and proceed with his work. At this time, Graham was attempting to use the new electric typewriter, which was, in theory, meant to make typing easier. 
However, every time she made an error, trying to correct it would leave a smeared mess. Watching the painter across the way inspired Betty. She decided to use white tempura paint to mix a solution in her kitchen blender. Hope she didn't make a shake after that. Ew. She then brought it to the office to test painting it over a mistyped letter, letting it air dry before typing the correction. It worked, and she named her invention Mistake Out. When word spread about her invention, it blew up. Be that as it may, it took five years for Betty to imagine selling her product. She began working nights and weekends with her son Michael, of the monkey's fame, to fill up the needed bottles. It wasn't until 1956 that she collaborated with her son's chemistry teacher and a paint manufacturer to further develop what would later become liquid paper. Once she patented her invention, it blew up, but she was fired from her secretarial job due to her poor typing skills. (laughs) Again. (laughs) Her business for liquid paper grew rapidly, leaving her wealthy and a philanthropist. Betty later created multiple foundations supporting women and female entrepreneurship and artistic endeavors. Cleveland sits on the opposite side of Lake Erie from Canada. While this proximity is not worrisome to us today, there was a time when Cleveland was worried that Canadians might invade their city. They needed a military group for protection, and so they formed one. This group eventually was known as the Cleveland Grays, and they built an armory that is today a museum. A haunted one, apparently. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Cleveland Grays Armory. There was a time in America's history where we didn't have a National Guard, and each city was responsible for its own protection. This is where the whole idea of militias kind of came from, Kelly, and why we had Minutemen that had guns in their houses and could run out in a minute to help defend the city or the country. Indeed. The type of threat posed to a city depended on its location. For Cleveland, the greatest threat would be coming from the north. The War of 1812 had ended in 1815, but this didn't end hostilities between the British and some parts of America. The Canadian rebellions of 1837 also caused concern with insurgents leading rebellions against the Crown in Lower and Upper Canada. The fighting in Lower Canada was more intense, which is why Cleveland grew concerned. French-Canadian farmers were struggling economically, and many Canadians were calling for responsible government, and London ignored the pleas. Patriot rebels attacked British regulars but didn't fare well, and many French-Canadian settlements were burned. Many of the rebels fled to America. The Upper Canadian Rebellion failed as well, and the two colonies were formed into the province of Canada. The rebels did, however, get responsible government. The city guards not only provided military protection, but they would also participate in ceremonies, assist local police forces, and form social clubs. Cleveland formed its own volunteer force made up of 65 men in 1837 and called it the Cleveland City Guards. Sounds like a sports team. Yeah, are they doing basketball, (laughs) football? Many cities use the term city guard, but others used light guard or simply guard, along with the name of the city. 
Cleveland decided it would rather take on the name of the color of their uniforms, which were gray. So in 1838, they became the Cleveland Grays. Those uniforms were very distinctive, and members topped their look with tall black bearskin caps. So basically, they had those hats like the King's Guard that guards like Buckingham Palace and stuff. Gotcha. Look very similar. Once a man had been a member for 25 years, he was considered a pioneer and could wear a leather apron with his uniform, and he could carry an axe when on parade. The pioneers usually would march at the very front of the parade, too. A little extra honor for you for being there a long time. Yeah, distinction. Today, the Grays mainly work to preserve the military heritage of Cleveland and promote patriotism. But in the past, they served as a military unit during the Spanish-American War, the Mexican Punitive Expedition in 1916, World War I, and during the Civil War, they were the first company to leave Cleveland. This gave them the distinction of being the first Ohio Volunteer Infantry, and they saw action at Vienna Station and the First Battle of Bull Run. They remained independent through the Civil War, but joined the National Guard during the Spanish-American War. After that ended, they returned to being independent. World War I saw the last active service of the Cleveland Grays as a unit. Individual members have gone on to serve in all wars up to the Persian and Gulf Wars. The men's only group now allows women to be members. Many of the city guards would build their own armories, and Cleveland did just that in 1893, erecting a gorgeous Richardson Romanesque-styled stonework building. But before that, the Grays set themselves up in different locations. They first occupied the fourth floor of the mechanics block, and they were there for over 30 years. In 1870, they moved to a former fire station on Frankfurt Street, and in 1880, they moved to the new city armory on Long Street. Unfortunately, fire destroyed much of that building in 1892. The Grays managed to recover quickly despite losing much of their equipment, and they soon raised enough funds to build their new armory. The cornerstone was laid on May 30, 1893, at a ceremony featuring the Grand Army Band of Canton. This stone was a three-ton Berea sandstone block. That is really heavy. (laughs) Indeed. 6,000 pounds. Colonel John Frazee was given the honor of laying the stone. When the building was finished, it stood four stories high with a five-story tower on one corner. The front window lintels were made from solid rough-hewn sandstone. The front entrance had colossal oak doors with a black iron drop gate in front, and the main entry arch was formed from polished granite columns. The building has been described as a splendid mix of color and texture and materials. It's a massive fortified-looking building that seems quite out of place with its surroundings, but it is a wonderful piece of architecture. Yeah, there's nothing nearby that looks anything like it that's historic in that way or is even as tall as that. The armory hosted more than just the militia group. There were social events like a performance by the Metropolitan Opera Company, military balls, and the first performance of the Cleveland Orchestra. This was also the exclusive venue for celebrating Cleveland Centennial in 1896. The armory had a large banquet hall as well, but it still served its main purpose with housing weapons and providing a drill hall for the militia. There was also a 140-foot shooting range in the basement. For entertainment, there was a billiards room, and in 1970, a three-manual 17-rank pipe organ from the Warner Theater in Erie, Pennsylvania was installed. Three or four concerts a year were given on the organ. The armory collected many artifacts over the years, and so it was a no-brainer to eventually turn the armory into a museum. The Grays Armory Museum preserves not only these artifacts, but also preserves the traditions of the Grays and shares their heritage. 
Veterans Day is always special here with the museum presenting an educational program honoring those who served. And the Gray's Armory can also be rented for a special event. So if you want your wedding in an armory, you could do it there. <laughs> Very nice. One of the most interesting items in the museum is the Sechesh Cannon, which was the first cannon that was captured by Union forces during the Civil War. This happened during the Battle of Corrick's Ford in July of 1861. Some troops from Indiana seized the cannon from Brigadier General Robert Selden Garnet and his men. This Indiana garrison had served with the Cleveland Light Artillery, and they decided to give the cannon to them. The Grays brought it back to Cleveland and placed it in Public Square. It was then fired every time the Union had a victory. When General Robert E. Lee surrendered, the cannon was fired through the entire night. It was eventually moved to the armory and put on display. And that name, Seshes, isn't like a specific kind of cannon because I looked it up because I'm like, is that a certain kind of cannon? It's just what they named this specific one. Interesting. So it's the only one that has that name. And this piece may be the only surviving captured Confederate cannon in existence in any major northern city. Wow. There are claims that the building is haunted. People experience the normal doors slamming on their own and disembodied footsteps and orbs have been captured in pictures. One thing that should be noted is that there's a cemetery right behind the armory. This is the city's oldest cemetery and called Erie Street Cemetery. It was founded at what had been the edge of town in 1826. So now you understand why they've got the armory where it is, cemetery where it is. This used to be the edge of town, not the middle of it. Many of Cleveland's early pioneers are buried here, like Lorenzo Carter, who was the first permanent settler in the city. Carter was a smart man as he became good friends with Chief Seneca when he moved to Cleveland, and this helped the settlement make it through years of disease, floods, and bad farming. He was a good man who protected a runaway slave and carried an American flag that his father had passed down to him that was made during the Revolutionary War. That flag continued to get passed through the Carter family and today is on display at the Western Reserve Historical Society. It was made from homespun linen and hand-stitched together. The red stripes were dyed with cranberries, and the blue field was dyed from elderberries. I would love to see that in person. I would, too. There are around 17,000 interments in the cemetery, and the Cleveland Grays have worked to maintain the burials. It's a pretty large cemetery. It is pretty big back there, and uh, it has a lot of markers in it, so it's not like, you know, just a bunch of grass and stuff. So I think they know a lot of the people who are buried there. The Confederate cannon is believed to have a spirit attached to it. There are stories of a female spirit who has been seen dancing as though she's attending a spectral ball. She's usually wearing a white party dress. And speaking of the ballroom, which is located at the back of the third floor, a ghostly soldier has been seen walking through the wall. Author Chris Woodyard has written books about haunted locations in Ohio, and one of the places he has covered is the armory. Woodyard claims to be psychic, and he was sitting on a leather couch in a second-floor room when a spirit appeared eight feet in front of him. He described the ghost as being a handsome young man with light brown hair, parted on one side, sporting a crown imperial goatee, wearing the Cleveland Grays uniform woolen jacket with a very distinctive graduated glockenspiel pattern formed from braids and buttons. That cannon having a spirit attached to it reminds me of the pictures or the video that people have captured in 
Gettysburg on the battlefield where you see the spirit that's standing right next to one of the cannons that's along the road there. Right. Too bad we never got to see that. We no. drove through, although we were there so briefly. Yeah, but we did drive through slowly, hoping to see something on either side. And I tried to look up, are there other stories of cannons having spirits attached to them? And I couldn't find any. But it seems like that would be something that would definitely have spirits because a lot of them would blow up, misfire. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. What could be causing the hauntings? There were two known people who died in the building. The first is a construction worker who helped build the armory in 1893. He died in an accident on the property. The second death involves a former maintenance man named Lou. He lived at the armory and had a massive heart attack one day when he stepped out into the drill hall. Later, when it was decided to move Lou's van off the property, the activity started to kick up with more unexplained noises and disembodied footsteps. Lou can be a prankster. He likes to walk right behind the living when they walk across the drill hall. It's kind of like you're like, is somebody following me? (laughs) It's just your shadow. Lou seems to still be making the rounds doing his chores. He checks to make sure the building is secure and has been seen in his caretaker's apartment in the tower. Lou's pretty possessive of his space. Once, when the Civil Air Patrol was meeting in the first floor tower room, a large potted plant in the room began shaking uncontrollably until it fell over. Oh my. You're going... Okay, there's a mini earthquake, but it's only happening to the plant. (laughs) There are other spirits here, too. A spirit who enjoyed cherry vanilla pipe tobacco has left the scent behind in certain rooms and can be discerned by the living. A crew that had come in to do some restoration work in the lobby took a short break, and when they came back, they found a huge mess of their paints. Clearly, a ghost wasn't happy with their work. At least it didn't dip its fingers in the paint and start doing murals. (laughs) Doodles. (laughs) I'm going to finger paint. Kilroy was here. Oh, no. Here we go. A caretaker once got a scare when he was working behind the drill hall. He watched as a gray-green hand pulled the door closed. He jumped up and opened the door to see who was in the drill hall. There was no one there. If you see a gray-green hand, I would already (laughs) be going, I'm not going to see a real human being. Either we've got (laughs) a ghost or a zombie hanging around. Something. A college student had volunteered to clean up the third floor ballroom. He was busily cleaning when he was startled by a soldier coming through the wall. Yeah, that would startle me. <laughs> that would me a little bit too. It's like, uh, where did you come from? And there's just a wall here, no door. Hmm. The student sat frozen for a moment and then he coughed, which seemed to cause the spirit to dissipate. <laughs> I love how it described it that way because I'm like, why would your response be to cough instead of be like, ah, I mean, I would have expected more like he... <laughs> you know, made a guttural noise or screamed or something or grunted, but he coughed. (laughs) And then the spirit disappears. There was another cleaning moment involving some Civil Air Patrol members. They were in the first floor foyer. One of the members went to make sure that all the doors were locked. He saw a soldier standing on the central staircase wearing a uniform from the past. This soldier was watching him. He made a quick exit and refused to be anywhere in the building alone again. And as we mentioned earlier, ghost hunters visited Cleveland Gray's Armory during season 11 on episode 2 in 2017. At the time, a woman named Kristen was the manager, and she wondered if ghostly activity had picked up since she was a woman running a facility that used to be open only to men. So maybe they were a little ticked. She also felt that Lou, the former maintenance man, was still hanging around the place. 
A man named Dante LaFloria was down in the gun range when he saw a shadow figure walk across it. He at first assumed it had to be a person, so he called out because it's dangerous to have people walking across the shooting range, you know? Just a little. (laughs) Yo, dude, wake up down there. I'm firing a firearm here. And that's when he realized that he was the only person down there. Dante went to Kristen's office and told her what happened. When he finished, all the service flags hanging on the walls in her office fell to the floor. Oh, my goodness. Now, one falls. Okay, it wasn't hanging properly. (laughs) Right. All of them at the same time. Yeah, something was trying to get your attention. And I don't know if it was like Lou being like, haha, it was me. Nice prank I pulled. Or if it was somebody who was angry. Right. That had never happened before. And it hasn't happened since either. Employee Dan Link had been in the building alone many times, and one night when he was working down in the basement, he heard footsteps walking across the drill hall above him. About three months before the ghost hunters investigated the building, alarms went off in the building and all the motion detectors were going off. Kristen immediately called the police, and when they all entered, they found nothing wrong in the building and nothing out of place. They checked security camera footage and saw multiple orbs like it was snowing in the room, zooming across the screen. Then, the orbs suddenly stop and go away. And that is when the alarm started going off. And they showed this video footage, and it was very weird. Remember when we talked about that place where the caterers, can't remember the building or the city it was in, but some caterers had moved into that old historic building, and she had security camera footage, and they had what looked like snow on it as well. Yes, I remember that. That was relatively recently. Yeah, and it's not TV snow, like we talk about back in the day, it looks like there's so many orbs in there. It's like snowflakes flying around. And that's kind of what this looked like. There weren't as many, but it was not, I mean, you couldn't have that many bugs. Let me put it that way. Or dust. Or even dust doesn't do that kind of thing. And the fact that it just goes away and then the alarm starts going off, it's almost like something was trying to manifest in front of the camera and then it tripped the alarm or something. I don't know. Jason and Steve would hear footsteps on the floor above them, run up to see if something was up there, and then hear footsteps coming from below them. Then a door closed behind them on its own. They felt like a spirit was messing with them. I would say so. And this happened (laughs) multiple times, and it was funny to watch them run up the stairs, then run back down the stairs, and run up the stairs, and then back down the stairs. And you're like, if Lou is a prankster, he is sitting there laughing his butt off watching these guys run around going, watch this. They tested the door and it wasn't anything they had done. So I appreciate it when investigators do that just to make sure that because they had come through that door and they were like, well, maybe when we came down the stairs and came through the door, we caused a breeze, but it's a heavy door. Sure. They then heard a loud noise behind them. So they're talking about it and somebody's playing with us and then you get a loud noise. So it's kind of indicating, yep, I am playing with you. Right. Confirmation. When Sherry went into the same areas that Jason and Steve had investigated, she was grabbed on the shoulder like a pinch between two fingers is how she described it. Ouch. So it wasn't just like, you know, somebody giving you a tap or just kind of grabbing you. It was like somebody who wanted to get her attention. Yeah, get that woman out of here, possibly. Yeah. Dustin and KJ went down to the shooting range and they heard disembodied footsteps. It sounded like a lot of shuffling. Hmm. And Lou was older. That's why he had a massive heart attack. So I don't know if it was maybe he had a shuffle to his step or did it sound like maybe a militia doing a drill? Right. Multiple people. In 2013, a guide at the armory told News 5 Cleveland that a caretaker would regularly go down to the basement and play the piano down there. And several times when he was doing that, he witnessed a lady in white materialize out of a wall. 
Sometimes he saw Gray's members walk through the wall, apparently to get to the bar on the other side. A tour guide told WKYC Channel 3 in 2018 that one night they were giving a tour and a woman on the tour suddenly froze. The guide asked if she was okay and she said, "Uh Uh-huh, but I just saw a man on the stairs. The guide asked what he was doing and the woman said that he was just standing there in a military uniform and then he disappeared. Apparently, the woman saw someone on every floor that evening. In October 2023, Fox 8 visited the armory and reported that in the basement, an exterminator had said he was touched on the shoulder and felt someone breathe on him. That exterminator refused to return for four or five months. I wonder how they convinced him to come back. I don't know. They also were told that many people have reported seeing a woman in white on the third floor looking out to the nearby cemetery. And when the ghost hunters were there, they went through the cemetery to see if they could pick up anything out there. And there doesn't seem to be any haunting activity going on with the cemetery. So it almost makes you think that some of the spirits from there have come on into the armory and are hanging out in there rather than in the cemetery. Could be. As you watch some of these videos with people walking around, you could see that there is paint chipped on the walls and stuff. The interior of the armory still has renovation work that needs to be done. But the wear and tear is actually endearing as it reminds us of its long military history. How many people from the past touch that same spot of wall? How many unseen people are watching you touch that wall? Is the Cleveland Gray's Armory haunted? That That is for you to decide. decide. Well, this is a great place to check out just to take pictures of the outside of it. Finding out about the military history is very interesting, too. And I guess I never thought about the fact that there was a time that we didn't have a National Guard. Right. And that each city had to make sure that they defended themselves. And so instead of just having random people in their homes who were armed, why not have your own little volunteer militia just like you had volunteer firefighters and stuff? We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com or at any of our various social media or wherever you happen to be listening to the podcast. You can leave comments there as well. One of those places is YouTube. If you aren't a subscriber over there, we'd love to have you subscribe. We got a comment from IMSIN1246 under Haunted Occoquan, Virginia. It says, I live in Virginia. This entire state has so much ghostly history. I love the weird feeling here. Every day you learn something new. I was by a friend's house and I saw an opening in the trees and I asked, what's over there? He said, oh, it's an old slave graveyard. I was so shocked I could have sworn I saw a guy walking in there with a shovel. It was me. My friend assured me it was probably a ghost as no one goes on that land or knows about it. Goodness. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And Kelly, on our last episode, there was a monk who would go in and order a beer that was a ghost. (laughs) And we were like, what? Monks drank beer or a monk can drink beer? Well, we heard from one of our listeners over on Instagram. They not only can drink it, they can make it. Very nice. And they do a good job of it. (laughs) There's a link here from foodandwine.com. Five beers made by real monks. Just at the beginning, it says, here are five interesting beers that are brewed by real, honest to God. Ha ha ha. (laughs) Trappist monks. Each certified as an authentic Trappist product. And it's renowned for quality and craftsmanship. Allie said... Listened to the most recent episode and heard the surprise about monks making beer. I grew up Catholic and monks and other religious figures are allowed to drink for sure. I mean, I guess if I thought about it, we have communion or the Eucharist in church and right, they drink wine. So why wouldn't they be able to drink beer? Monks in some cases are actually renowned beer makers. 
Here's an article about very hard to find but very good beers. Monks were also great farmers and grew the perfect ingredients for their beers. Egyptians probably accidentally made beer or bread first, but archaeologists can't tell the difference because the ingredients look the same. There's a whole liquor store chain called Friar Tuck, and a monk is the logo. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So thank you for sharing that, Allie. Yes, thank you. Want to thank all of you for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information. Being employed for a performance requiring a foul-flying flatulence accompanied by a whistle certainly is odd. Now that is quite the talent to get all of those things to fire off at once. And this is before Taco Bell. So how did he ensure (laughs) that he was going to be able to perform the basement feat? Indeed. That oddity stunk, Kelly. Well, thank you. Once she patented... Once she patented her in... Once she patented... Some of these words I have such a hard time. That's all, folks. Once she patented it. Patented. They checked security camera footage and saw multiple arms. The arms are flying around. The arms are flying all around the room. Arms are just disembodied. They're flying around the room. That would definitely get my attention more than orbs. Orbs are so Meh, blasé compared to arms flying around. I mean, I'd much rather see arms flying around. <laughs> you would? <laughs> I'd be running out of there for sure. We'd get famous with the footage. That's true. <laughs> <laughs>